Stuff Podcasts. A warning. This podcast contains references to subjects and discussions that could be hard for some people to hear. Some episodes may also contain explicit language, so please take care. Yes, absolutely. Your body's great too, says Dove. Your body's great too, says Special Case Cereal. Your body's great too, says WW, formerly known as Weight Watchers. And so what you see are all of these corporate interests saying, yes, we're body positive too. Now, body positivity has become a corporate campaign for the mainstream because it has been depoliticized. Queenie, queenie, don't drop the ball. Queenie, queenie, don't drop the ball. Queenie, queenie, don't drop the ball. Down come baby cradling on. No my heart in my welcome to Tell Me About It, the podcast where we're talking about capitalism, colonization, and the patriarchy. Talk about value for money. <laughs> That's right. I'm Michelle Duff. I'm Kirsty Johnston. And I'm Noelle McCarthy. So we're doing a special show today. It's a tribute to the work and life of a very well-known and well-respected academic in the field of fat studies, a fat activist who died recently. Kat Pauze's death was a huge shock to her community and to her colleagues and everyone who loved her. And there were many, many people who loved her. And today we are honouring her work as a fat scholar and a fat activist. And we're using that word fat, just to note, in the same way that Kat Pauze used it, with pride, as a means of celebrating and reclaiming identity, a way of disrupting all those built-in hierarchies around which bodies are more and which are less acceptable in our society. So we're talking about Kat Pauze today and her work with gratitude. Michelle, you met Kat um, in the course of your work in journalism. Can you tell us a bit to start off with about who Kat Pauze was and about the work she did? Yeah, I would love to. So Kat Pauze was a fat study scholar at Massey University and a fat activist and feminist, and she lived in Palmas North. So I first met Kat in about 2009, I think, when I was working at the Manawatu Standard. And so Kat is part of this community of activists who's reclaiming fat as an identity. And she's described herself as not just fat, but super fat. Yeah, I read about that, how, like, when she called herself fat or super fat in, like, social situations, everyone got really uncomfortable. Like, I think she described, like, the sharp intake of breath just because people didn't know what to do with themselves when she's blatantly just like, yeah, I'm fat, what about it? <laughs> yeah, th- so that was her whole thing. So she wrote uh, she wrote about this, she talked about this, she uh, wrote columns, journal articles, she organised conferences, I think around th- about three of those. She had a podcast and she also edited the International Handbook of Fat Studies, which we'll get to a bit later because we're going to talk to her co-editor, Sonia Renee Taylor. So tell us, where was Kat from? Did she, she lived in New Zealand. Was she from New Zealand? So she was from the United States, but she'd made New Zealand her home and the Manawatu her home. So I first talked to her when Barack Obama won the presidency in uh, 2009, and I was trying to get Americans to tell me about that. Just the quick, <laughs> I love your job. The regional <laughs> New Zealand, quick, find a, <laughs> find a local. Find an American in Manawatu. Find an American. Kat's an American. What was she like? Well, I just found her, like, really fun, compelling, and incredibly articulate and convincing. You know, uh, not all academics are like that, believe it or not. 
Yeah, so basically we got started talking about feminism and her research, and that's, as we've just discussed, that's all about how society discriminates against fat bodies and women in particular. And I remember uh, getting into a really deep discussion with her about this, and then that sort of ended in her inviting me to this feminist group at Massey that she ran. And I thought that she was kind of inviting me there to maybe do a story on that. And so when I got there, though, it was kind of like this very intimate group of women sort of all sitting in a circle. We might have been holding hands. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. But everyone was talking about bodies and periods, and it was it was very intense. But you would have been right into that, just like burning some sage and taking your bra off, surely? I wasn't, actually. I, I was in my early 20s, and I was just sort of starting my feminist journey. So everything that Kat was saying to me was, you know, incredibly... Uh, I, I found it really powerful and really thoughtful, but I, you know, I don't, I don't know that I was quite... It was a bit much for me. You weren't quite ready. <laughs> I remember going outside and ringing the photographer, like, Murray, like, Muzz, um, I, I don't think you should come. This isn't quite the place for, <laughs> for you. Oh, come on. I reckon Muzz would have, would have loved it. Well, I mean, yeah, he was a big yoga pra- practitioner, <laughs> quite a new age guy. So he might have been okay with it, actually. Maybe it was more more me. <gasps> I feel really sad to be robbed of the photographs that Muzz might have taken if he actually turned up, Michelle. Um, I love this. So like what you're saying, as well as being an academic, it sounds like Kat was very much about people. I mean, she would have had to start that group, you know, like and 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 be about these sorts of grassroots community groups, which certainly not all academics are about that sort of thing. Yeah, Noelle, that's actually one thing I thought was so interesting about Kat and maybe why uh, her work was so influential and impactful is that she really walked the talk, you know, she was an internationally recognised fat studies scholar. She also was really involved in the tertiary education union here in New Zealand. She did a radio show with one or two people's radio called Friends of Marilyn. And she even stood for the Mid-Central District Health Health Board. So, yeah, she was kind of involved in everything. Was she successful in getting onto the Health Board? I feel like that would have been a really good perspective to have, to have Kat on there. Like, they would have been lucky to have her, to be honest. Uh, well, no, she didn't. She didn't get on. She didn't get voted on. She stood before it because she wanted to improve patient care and to address discrimination against fat people, and you know, sort of highlight some of the difficulties they find in accessing healthcare. But yeah, no, she she didn't make it on, unfortunately. What are some of those ways, Michelle? You know, you're talking about how fat bodies are discriminated against in health settings and even when it comes to accessing healthcare. What are some of the things that happen? I wish we had Kat here to tell us that, but I will try my best to explain. Essentially, loads of research shows that fat people are basically just gaslit a lot of the time in uh, healthcare settings. They're not taken seriously. You know, they can be misdiagnosed because, you know, a doctor confuses a tumour for fatness or denied treatment because we're still really uh, use BMI as a measure of health. Mm, we're really hung up on that, aren't we? Yeah, we are. We are. And, you know, there's a lot of research to show that, you know, there that's not the be-all and end-all, in fact, and it can really be a red herring. So 
Yeah, and then, of course, fat people delay going to see doctors so that when they do go, they are, you know, they're worse when they get there. So they're more likely to die of things like breast and cervical cancer and, you know, a, a range of, uh, of diseases that could have been seen earlier. Like, even from personal experience, I feel like doctors always just love to bring that up. Like It's true, isn't it? It's the first thing you have to do. Like, you've got to get on the scale. Yeah. You've got to stand up there, even if you're going in for something that has nothing to do with your weight. Yeah, like one time I think I went to see my GP. Hang on, guys. The dog next door's back. Hang on. There's always a dog in your in your rohe, Christy. At least it's not a plane, I guess. It's just totally dogs everywhere. <laughs> yeah, like one time I think I went to see the doctor and I think it was for like a concussion. Um, and the first thing she did was like make me get on the scales and then said something like, oh, you should just watch that about my weight and I think I weighed like 65 kilos at the time and my BMI was like totally fine but it just seems so indicative of their mindset that they would even say something like that to you. I mean it's a completely unrelated issue I think yeah I think that's a really good example that as a society we are obsessed with thinness and that's despite you know all these studies showing that you can be thin and unhealthy you know and you can be fat and healthy but the idea of thin bodies as the ideal and the norm has like it's got a huge repercussions for healthcare, and it really is a social justice issue, you know. And that's what Kat was always sort of pushing. For example, one of the um, things that she was doing in the last few months was talking a lot about how we need longer needles for COVID-19 vaccinations for fat people because, you know, it actually needs a longer needle to go deeper into muscles. And instead of those being used routinely, they're available, but, you know, they're, they're frequently not being used. It actually blows your mind once you start thinking about it, eh? Because, you know, the, the health system is just like this one-size-fits-all system and the size that it's fitting is thin and like let's be honest white and let us not forget that weight loss is an industry you know diets pills wellness I think one of the most recent estimates was the diet industry is valued at around 192 billion US dollars it's outrageous isn't it I mean these are our bodies Look, to be honest who hasn't spent a good part of their 20s just eating grapefruit and eggs <laughs> Did you do that? Oh, shit, yeah. I've been on, oh, like, God. every day of What about the one? What about the one with the pepper? You know, like, where you you put the pepper in the lemon juice and you and Yeah, you but you forgot else? the first step, which is to drink, like, a litre of salt water. <laughs> and then you transition oh to... Can you imagine? It's just and like, like Jordan saying, Patterson like, with his... Um, meat. With his <laughs> with carnivore meat. diet. Only meat. Just a recipe for, for constipation. But it is, isn't it? Like, and I mean, this is very much... A Western sort of colonized mindset in so many ways. Oh, yeah. So one of Kat's most recent studies, which I was reading last night, was she did it with researcher Ashley Gillen, and they talk about how pre-colonization, Māori didn't see fat as a negative. So the word mōmōna, uh, which, you know, is means fat, is actually, well, it's used for the word fat, but it actually also means in good condition, rich, fertile, and nourished. Oh, I love that, nourished. Like, you know in when babies condition. are chunky? That's yeah. the word for them. But you see, this is society again, isn't it? Like, because it's okay for babies to be chunky. 
like that's something that we we love and we sort of revere and we idealize. But God forbid that over the age of, I don't know, 12 as a woman, you know, you you have a, a normal and natural distribution of body fat. Well, even younger. Yeah, there's one study I found where uh, they found half, more than half of three to six-year-old girls were worried, had had some worries about their weight. Mm. It's tragic. And I mean, going back to Kat's, um, to Kat's recent study, Michelle, and that, you know, it's a different way of looking at the body, isn't it? Like not to see fatness or um, richness or being nourished as a problem. Like Western culture has made bodies that don't conform to a particular thin white ideal such an issue. Yeah, do you think that's why Kat was so staunch, Michelle? Because it is she was like pushing back against this giant force that like all of these embedded ideas. Yeah, she was swimming against the tide for sure. I mean, she had to be staunch really to be able to sort of do that work. You know, she was totally unapologetic. And this is one of my favorite quotes actually, um, from a piece she wrote about experiencing fat hate. So she said Fat people don't owe you anything. We don't owe you apologies. We don't owe you excuses. We don't owe you erections. We don't even owe you health. So I think... Yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. And and this is, I think, part of the reason that Kat, um, you know, is such a loss and that, it's, that, that her death has been felt so deeply here and around the world, you know, by her friends and the wider communities. I guess she really had a way of being so articulate but also so straightforward and it's hard to argue against against that you know and I guess one of the things we're sort of touching on and I'm starting to understand just a little bit is the importance of community when you're doing this sort of work right you you know when you're doing this sort of political heavy lifting um you need a community you need your community around you like it can't just be individual action because that's how almost the forces of capitalism and colonization sort of want you to be, you know, individualistic. And and Kat had um, a community who loved her and, and supported her. And the person we're going to talk to today um, about the work they did together and about fat studies in general is Kat's friend and collaborator, Sonia Renee Taylor. And Sonia um, co-edited the Fat Studies Handbook that, um, that Kat Posey edited with her. And Sonia um, comes from the space of being a performance poet and a writer and an educator and an activist. And um, she lived here in New Zealand as a Hillary um, fellow for a while. And she's on tour now in America doing performances around her book, which is called The Body is Not an Apology, The Power of Radical Self-Love. Hell of a title. And um, Sonia Renee Taylor is with us now here on the line from America. Kia ora, Sonia. Thank you so much for being here today to talk to us. Just really glad that you can make the time to come and tell me about it. Uh, kia ora. Thank you so much for having me. It's it's wonderful to get to be here. So I think the first thing that we'd like to ask you is, can you tell us a little bit about how you met Kat and how you sort of uh, came to be working with her? Um. Yeah. So I met Kat back in 2016. 
she was in the United States visiting her family, as she often did, and came to Oakland, California, because she wanted to be connected to some other fat activists and folks in the fat community. And so I got a message from a friend, Tigress Osborne, saying, there's this awesome fat academic and activist from New Zealand who wants to come and connect with community. Let's meet at the Buttercup Cafe in Jack London Square. So um, several of my friends, I'll just kind of show myself, my friend Denise Jolly um, and several other fat activists all just showed up. And there was this beaming, you know, siren redhead uh, with the largest smile in the world. And she was just so immediately warm and endearing and and just felt like community really, really quickly. And after that, we, we sort of started keeping in touch with each other via social media and um, following each other. And then in the summer of 2017, she sent me an email and said, hey, I'm working on this project, this book project, and um, I need a new co-editor. She was like, would you be interested? And I had not written anything in the academic realm since college. (laughs) So I was feeling a bit out of my depth, but she just really assured me that my voice was necessary and important lens to add to uh, this International Handbook of Fat Studies. And so I represented the fat activism uh, aspect of the work and and she held down the sort of fat studies and academic act and we really explored for the next four years the stories of being fat and all of the intersections that exist therein both in the activist and the academic space. Hi Sonia it's um it's Noel here thank you so much for making the time to be with us and um and we're really sorry for your loss of your friend Kat as well. Just to pick up on on the last point you make about intersectionality, could you tell us a little bit about where you see fat discrimination intersecting with racism, with classism, with homophobia? Absolutely. So I think that, as is true for all um, axes of oppression, um, when one is uh, sort of multiply Uh, identified along those axes of oppression, you see an even more significant impact and exacerbation of the harms that come from those oppressions. So to be, you know, fatness has its own set of um, experiences and biases and prejudices and structural and systemic um, marginalizations that exist inside of it. Um, Homophobia has its own set of uh, stigmas and biases and oppression that live inside of that, as does being racialized um, any identity outside of white, but particularly on a spectrum of anti-Blackness. And so when you see those identities coalesce and intersect, what you see is a magnification of all their individual experiences, as well as the sort of specific new ways that those hatreds come forward. And so you see not only the the stigma of blackness and the marginalization that happens in blackness. But when you add fatness to blackness, you're looking at a a, a new and um, often more extreme, often even more marginalized experience as a result of the intersection of those identities. That's true as well um, inside of homophobia. One of the things that you also then have to contend with 
is the way in which those the marginalization and stigmatization of fat then plays inside of those communities themselves um, to create an even more isolating experience. So, you know, I'm thinking about even inside of the gay community, the no fats, no fems, right? So there's this, even in an intercommunal experience, you're still receiving an even greater marginalization and stigmatization because of the identity of fatness. It's Kirsty here, Sonia. Thanks for being on. Can you just explain, like, why does society get so mad at fat people and fat women, like, particularly outspoken ones? Like, what is it about us that that really gets riled up about that? I think, you know, if you have a society that is structured around the idea that thinness is capital, right? That thinness is currency, that thinness um, gets you a certain level of access in the world, uh, a certain level of privilege in the world. Also that the aspiration of thinness um, creates a certain, a certain, what's the word I want? A, A discipline and a rigidity towards seeking that goal. It makes you manipulable, right? It makes you willing to exchange so many things for the capital of thinness. So when you see people being unapologetically fat, (laughs) when you see people being unwilling to cash in to what everyone else has said, no, there's great capital in that. It is so inherently defiant and so inherently disruptive that anyone who is deeply bought into the idea of thinness as capital is going to be enraged. And anyone who is bought into the idea of the um, pursuit of thinness as the way in which a person becomes um, controllable and manipulable is going to be enraged because all of a sudden you're a body that doesn't seem to care about this capital that we say is capital. And you are not as manipulable and not as controllable when you no longer care about the world's perspective on fatness. Uh, and so I think it enrages people. I think it enrages someone to be like, I've spent my whole life dieting and you're just, you're just going to walk away from that. Or you're just going to let your, you're just going to defy all the social norms. <laughs> um, and I think we see that in lots of spaces when people opt out of the collective story of oppression, it creates you see the the desire to fight back, to press back against that, to wrangle those people back into the fold. Um, and so I think fat bodies are inherently disruptive and inherently defiant. And, and so we see all the pushback from that. Sonia, I spoke to Kat several times as a journalist, you know, a- about her work. And one of the things I found about her was that she was really unapologetic, right? And I know also that she was uh, really aware of those intersections that you mentioned earlier and, and, and about not upholding sort of white supremacy, you know, within the fat studies space as well. So can you describe to us sort of the impact of her work and how it sort of overlapped with, with what you're doing? Yeah. So, you know, what I, what I love so much about Kat um, was her willingness to always be first and foremost unapologetically fat. And I think that she was, you know, unapologetically fat long before she knew that I had um, an organization called The Body Is Not an Apology. It was about being unapologetic. And so there was always an alignment around what does it mean to be unapologetically um, existent in your body, 
you know? And so we always had that connection. But what I also loved about Kat is that she also understood that she, that no one's narrative is only oppression, that we all live inside of systems that both oppress us for aspects of our identity and bodies and privilege us for aspects of our identities and our bodies. And she was always willing to, um, and intentional about looking at where um, where her oppression lied, but also where her privilege lied, where there would be um, pushback against her body and where uh, she would be invited to cash in on the privilege and advantage and capital of her body as well. And ultimately what she cared about was disrupting all of those systems. What she cared about was creating a world that was equitable and just for all bodies. And that was, you know, that was always where we had such clear overlap. The body is not an apologies. Um, unofficial motto has always been radical self-love for everybody and every body. And um, Kat's work was always about how do we really create a world where all bodies get to be unapologetic, where all bodies get to have equity and justice, resource and opportunity. And um, and yeah, and I think, you know, one of the things I'm so grateful about as being co-editor on her last full project was that the International Handbook of Fat Studies is doing exactly that. Sonia, you mentioned the body is not an apology. You know, your platform, your movement, um, it, it's you know, so many things as an exploration of that radical self-love that you're talking about. Can you tell us a little bit of the background to The Body is Not an Apology? Because it started as a conversation, which then became a poem. Is that right? The Body is Not an Apology started uh, as formally as you know, making a Facebook post and a Facebook group can be <laughs> back in February 9th of 2011. But it, it arose out of a conversation with a friend in Knoxville, Tennessee. And I talk about this at the beginning of my book, where I'm at this event, at a poetry slam event, which was my former career as a, a performance poet. And I'm at a poetry slam event, having a conversation with one of my teammates, who's afraid that she might have an unintended pregnancy. And I'm asking her about her sexual health choices. I'm asking her about the predicament she finds herself in. And I'm, I'm asking from a place of love and care and non-judgment and curiosity and, you know, my own, the intersection of my own journey and the things that I've been through. And my friend responded with great candor and she had cerebral palsy and she shared that her disability made it difficult for her to be sexual already. And so she didn't feel entitled to ask this person to use a condom. And my response to her, which I'm very clear was through me, not of me. It was just channeled wisdom that was supposed to create something in the world. I said to her, your body is not an apology. It's not something you offer to say sorry for my disability. And when I said it, it just, it stuck with me. It resonated. It stayed inside my body. It was very clearly a message for me as much as it was for her. And I uh, I knew it was going to become a poem because that's what I did with things that felt like profound epiphanies back then. They became po poems. And so I wrote this poem and the poem, the poem began nudging me in all the places where I was still very much operating as an apology in my own body. And a small way was that I had a selfie in my phone from an event I was preparing to go to. I snapped a little picture of myself and I felt 
powerful and sexy and hot <laughs> in this picture. And I also felt um, like I wasn't entitled to share it. Like I didn't have any right to feel powerful or sexy in this body because this is a fat, black, dark skin, neurodivergent body. And how dare I feel celebratory in it. And so with the encouragement from some friends on Facebook who shared a plus-sized model like on my wall. They just shared a picture of her because she was super sexy. And I Googled her and found that she was doing a lingerie ad. And in the lingerie ad, she was wearing the exact same kind of corset that I was wearing in the picture that I was so earnestly hiding in my phone for months. And that moment inspired me to post the photo. And I asked other people on Facebook to post photos where they felt powerful and empowered in their bodies. And the next morning, about 30 people tagged me in photos. And I had this moment where I was like, oh, we must just need a place where we're allowed to affirm ourselves and where we're allowed to feel unapologetic. And so I was like, oh, I'll start a little Facebook group. And so I was like, well, I've got this poem and it's titled The Body is Not an Apology. So I'll call that the title of the Facebook group. So yeah, that was you know, more than a decade ago. And it's now a, a movement and a, a global movement and the New York Times bestseller. And, and it's transformed my life and the lives of millions as far as I know. And so it's been really an amazing journey. And that's how the revolution began. <laughs> <laughs> so what, I, what I'm still trying to get my head around, Sonia, is like... Exactly. The, <laughs> is the difference between like body positivity on the one hand and then I guess fat liberation like how do those how are they different the way that I see the distinction is fat liberation was created by marginalized people experiencing oppression um, and desiring to see um, a political an end to political structural and systemic oppression against their bodies it was an inherently political ideology started by queer folks and women of color primarily, um, designed to push back against systems of oppression. And I see that notion as an incredibly political idea. I see that notion um, that we could love our bodies as they are as a direct route to defying all of the systems that have been built on telling us that we should hate them. And I also see that as an inherently intersectional idea. That means I get to love my black body. It means I get to love my fat body, my disabled body, my queer body, my trans body. Um, and it means that I deserve a world um, that treats those identities lovingly. Body positivity took that and then it became this very mainstream notion, right? When anytime I think the larger demographic with the most resource and the most access takes on takes on an idea like body positivity, so, you know, relatively straight sized white women were like, yeah, we're because they were also receiving those same messages. Your body's wrong. Your, your body's wrong. When they came to the idea that, oh, maybe that's not true. Then what also came behind them was all of the corporate and capitalist interest who still needed them to be consumers. And so then what you began to see was this major marketing machine say, yes, Absolutely. Your body's great too, says Dove. Your body's great too, says Special K Cereal. Your body's great too, says WW, formerly known as Weight Watchers. And so what you see are all of these corporate interests 
saying, yes, we're body positive too. Now body positivity has become a corporate campaign for the mainstream because it has been depoliticized. Because the intention, which was to create justice and equity and challenge um, inherently oppressive systems, got taken away from that. And in place of it just became sort of these lovely but ultimately vacuous affirmations about loving your body without any context about society or about systems and about all of the things that have been built around body hatred. Damn, (laughs) that was awesome. Thank you, Sonia. Sonia, as someone who spent time in New Zealand, um, what were your impressions of where the discourse is at here in terms of, you know, those intersections and in terms of um, fat liberation as a political movement? Um, You know, (laughs) for fear of getting in trouble um, from my Aotearoa compatriots, but I don't think I don't think anybody would blame me too much for this. Um, analysis. But I think that in general, because New Zealand is very far away and very small, the its process is slightly behind, you know, it's it's slower in terms of seeing these things as political movements and really beginning to um, latch on to them. I think it was one of the reasons why Kat was such an important, um, an important person in this space is because she was very much taking the leading edge, cutting edge thinking around what does a fat politic look like and what does um, what does a radical fat academic worldview look like and what does fat activism look like? And then embedding that in her chosen home of Aotearoa. And so she was bringing this really forward thinking to a place that was still very much, you know, in the late 90s in its thinking about fatness. Yeah, I mean, I know that I was looking yesterday through all of the stories that we've written about her over the years, uh, the news organization stuff. And, you know, she's been a voice throughout our stories talking about fat studies and fat activism as a social justice issue. And it's, I mean, it seems to me absolutely invaluable and yeah, a great loss for, for you and, and for, for everyone really in that space. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm, you know, what I'm grateful about is that she left so much scholarship and she left so much um, legacy and so many mentees and so many people who she has brought into the work that I trust that it will be carried on because there are so many people who are committed to seeing the work that she's done continue to have um, powerful impact long after her time in the physical realm, you know. And thank you, Sonia. Thank you for making time to come and talk to us. I was thinking actually when you were answering that last question, there was a festival last year, the Fat Feb Festival in um, in South Auckland, you know, which was very much grassroots, community driven, you know, celebrating and discussing the sort of political and social aspects and cultural aspects of fatness in a way that, you know, reminded me when I was listening to you talking, you know, that, that those movements are here and are definitely getting some traction, you know, but it's it's a process, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I had an opportunity to participate in some of the Fat Feb activities and um, I had a fat activist from the U.S. who happened to be visiting me um, at that time. And we got to go to the Fat Pool Party with Kat and so many other awesome, uh, you know, just fat activists and fat community members. And it was really, really powerful. And so, 
yeah, that, that space and that work is still happening and it's thriving. And, and I have no doubts that it's going to continue to grow and, you know, in no, no small part as a result of Kat Pazé's powerful work in the world. And hey, this is just a question for all of us, I guess. What can we do? I mean, I don't think that I'm particularly um, disruptive, but maybe I could be. Like, what can we do to sort of like help this cause, I guess? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's really important to one sort of, you know, Kat would say to fatten up your life, right? To fatten up your um, the people that you watch and the information that you take. Are you exploring the perspectives and lives of fat people? Are you exploring them as full and vibrant humans? Are you um, challenging fat phobia when you see it and when you hear it? Are you looking for ways to divest from your own weight stigma and fat phobia? Are you doing work to, to move through some of those internalized things? I think those are all powerful ways to do that. And I also you know, just to plug my own self <laughs> um, in my book, The Body is Not an Apology, the second edition, I give some really specific ways that you can begin to challenge fat phobia in your own life and challenge fat phobia in your community. And so I certainly invite folks to get a copy of The Body is Not an Apology. I just think it's a great place to start. And then also to get um, copies of the International Handbook of Fat Studies, which is the book that Kat and I co-edited. Thanks so much for making time to talk to us, Sonia, and for talking to us about Kat, you know, so soon after um, after losing her. We really appreciate it. And while you're on tour, you must be so busy. I so appreciate you all asking. and It, it feels good to just touch into Aotearoa a little bit, even while I'm on the road. That was Sonia Renee Taylor, the author of The Body Is Not An Apology and friend and collaborator of the late Kat Pause. Oh, when she was speaking, I was like really struggling not to interrupt her just by being like, yes, the whole time. There was an amazing clarity to it, wasn't there, that I find really energizing. She really is. And I mean, there's a lot more to read in the space and a lot more you know, work and activism, I think, that will continue here and, and in Aotearoa New Zealand. So I guess we can watch the space. It was great. It was so confronting. I love it when you talk to people and they really change, like, your entire worldview, you know, and bring up things and think, I've never thought about things in that way before. Like, it's so valuable. And I think that's when Sonia, what, what did she call it? Fattening up your life. I'm going to go and fatten up my, my life nourishment and richness that's us that's us for another week i can't believe we managed to finish the podcast without a plane going past your house Kirsty. but i reckon we just get out now fast not without dogs though yeah yeah, yeah. but that's uh, you, you know that's that's not a plane so we're doing well see you both next week bye see ya Matewa. Tell Me About It is made for stuff by Bird of Paradise Productions. It was produced by me, Noelle McCarthy, and written by me, Kirsty Johnston, and Michelle Duff. Our script supervisor is Eugene Bingham, and thanks to Janine Fenwick and Eugene for editorial oversight. Mixed by Mark Chesterman. And our theme tune is Queenie Queenie by Tammy Nielsen, our queen. You can like the podcast and leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell Me About It is made possible by funding from New Zealand On Air. Queenie, Queenie, don't drop the ball. Queenie, Queenie, don't drop the ball. Queenie, Queenie, don't drop the ball. Down come baby, cradling on. Queenie, Queenie, don't drop the ball.